Good morning. Thank you for that response, too. Usually I say good morning or good afternoon and uh, am met with some, some sleepy faces and sleepy eyes. So I'm the one who's pretty sleepy this morning. Um, so it's good to be with you. It's always good to be with you and open up God's Word uh, with you and, uh, and not just uh, preach at you, but to, um, to also sit under God's Word and to learn um, and to, to be fed. We're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 20, starting at verse 20, uh, and I'm going to read, read this in just, a, in just a moment, but before I do, let me just say a couple things. Uh, I am from the South. If you didn't already know that, you probably can hear it in my voice. Um, I was kind of an oddity growing up uh, in in our church context uh, that that we grew up in. I was part of a PCA church for a number of years. It was a, about a 2,000 member PCA church. Um, it was a very affluent church, uh, and as a as a teenager, um, it was it was a pretty awkward time for me and, and my siblings. I mean, it's already awkward being a teenager, going through puberty. I started going through puberty when I was almost 16, so it made me doubly awkward um, for me. Um, but, uh, but this church we went to, um, it was, again, very affluent. Um, all the, the kids had trust funds. Um, they were very wealthy. They went to very expensive private schools, like $30,000 a year expensive um, for one child. Um, uh, they they lived in cool parts of the city in really nice uh, houses. We we lived a, a completely disparate life. Um, we were broke, we were poor, we lived out in the country, and we were homeschooled. Uh, so you combine the awkwardness of being a, an early teen uh, with not really fitting into that context. Um, it it was it was tough. Um, especially because we, we wanted to fit in. I wanted to fit in. Uh, my older sister wanted to fit in. Um, and she had a hard go of it, too. Um, uh, she, uh, she was, um, well, I'll say this. But the, the young girls in that youth group um, all chose an SEC school to go to when they would get to their college years. At Southeastern Conference. Um, Georgia, University of Tennessee, Vanderbilt, Alabama, these, these types of schools. Um, and, and really all the kids would choose to go to SEC school. They started rooting for the football teams, the other sports teams from a very young age. Well, for a 13-year-old go- girl like my sister, the popular choice in that age group uh, was Auburn. Now, my sister didn't know where Auburn was. Um, she did not know their their colors. She did not know their mascot. Um, she was never going to go to Auburn University, uh, but to try to fit in, to try to feel like she was significant in this crowd, she went out and bought an Auburn sweatshirt to wear to youth group. Um, but when she got there, she was mocked, not for the sweatshirt she was wearing, but for her shoes. Uh, she was wearing a pair of Chuck Taylors, which I think are pretty cool shoes. Uh, they're timeless, I think. Um, but what was all the rage in 1993 were Timberland hiking boots. Um, but again, we were broke. <laughs> so what did my sister do? Uh, she went to Walmart 
and uh, took her uh, uh, money that she had saved up and she bought a pair of knockoffs. Um, but still, that, that didn't work to fit into that crowd. What's, what's the point of me saying this? Whether you're a 13-year-old girl or whether you're an 83-year-old man, um, we all have a strong desire to feel significant, uh, to think that, that the things that we do is significant. Right? That's, that's actually not a bad desire. God created us with, with that desire. Um, why? Be, because the Bible tells us that God wonderfully made us, that, that He crowned us with glory and honor, and He's given us dominion and purpose. So the, the problem is not wanting to experience glory and greatness. That's very biblical. Um, the problem is when uh, we we don't think rightly about how glory and greatness is typically achieved. So we're going to talk about that this morning. Um, We're going to look at the search for significance and then where you actually find it. So let me pray for us and then I'll read the text. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. You are our strength. You are our Redeemer. Lord, be with us. Amen. Matthew 20, starting at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that is Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ray Kinsella was a poor Iowa corn farmer and not a very good corn farmer who was facing bankruptcy. He was going to lose it all, lose uh, his home, uh, lose their farm. And one day, he, one evening, he decided to, to walk through his cornfield, and that's when he began to hear voices. Um, if you remember the movie Field of Dreams, you know what he heard. If you build it, he will come. 
if you build it, he will come. He, he didn't quite know uh, what the it was that he was to build, but he found out. He started to have prophetic visions about what the it was. He was supposed to build a baseball field there in the middle of his cornfield, um, and he, he listened, uh, much to the dismay of other non-believers. Uh, Ray Kinsella uh, took out a huge swath of his cornfield that he needed uh, for, for his family's livelihood, and he sunk a bunch of money into making, into building this, this baseball field in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. Um, and uh, people thought he was crazy, right? Because he was doing this after listening to the voices in his head. Um, but then, one day, uh, the ghost of, of baseball past started to drift out from the cornfield and said, hey, can we come play ball on your field? Uh, the likes of shoeless Joe Jackson. And, uh, and Ray was amazed at this. And he said, this is it. This is going to save our farm. This is going to save my family. And uh, he said, you know, people have got to see this. People are going to come from all over. They're going to pay money to see these ghosts play baseball. I need to, to, to let people know about this. How am I going to do this? So he travels across country, and he finds this sports writer named Terrence Mann, played by James Earl Jones. And he brings Terrence back, and then he and Terrence are sitting there, and they're watching these, these ghosts play baseball. And at the very end of the day, right before the, the ghosts drift back into the ether, um, Sheila's Joe turns around and looks at them and he says, Hey, do, do you want to come with us? And Ray is thinking, Oh my goodness, of course I want to come with you. I don't, I don't know what's out there. Is it the afterlife? Does it mean death? I don't know, but yes. And Sheila's Joe says, No, 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 not you, Ray. Him, Terrence. And this is the exchange between Ray and Shoeless Joe. Ray says, but I want to know what's out there. I want to see it. But you're not invited, Ray. Not invited? What do you mean not invited? That's my corn out there. You guys are guests in my corn. I've done everything that I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. And I haven't even once asked what's in it for me. What are you saying, Ray? I'm saying what's in it for me. Is that why you did this for you? Ray wanted to feel significant. The disciples here in our text, they are searching for significance too. A friend of mine a couple years ago was um, talking about this passage and he said, you know, we, we probably don't have to use that much imagination, maybe some sanctified imagination to know how this conversation went down between these two brothers, James and John. It probably went something like this. Hey, James... Yeah, bro. What is it? Um, hey, ha, have you noticed how Jesus has been talking a lot about the kingdom lately? Yeah, I, I have noticed that. He's also been talking a lot about dying. What, what do you think that's about? Oh, I don't know. It's probably one of his parables, you know. Um, well, d- did you hear how just back in chapter 19, uh, he, he said that all those that, that follow him uh, would sit on 12 thrones yeah, I, I did notice that. Well, okay, I was doing some math over here. Now, get this. I know Jesus has a lot of followers, but there's 12 thrones and there's 12 of us. You know what I'm thinking? Dude, 
Yes, one throne each. Hashtag blessed. This is great. Okay, but do you know what's even better than sitting on a throne with Jesus? What could possibly be better than that? Sitting on the throne right next to Jesus. Man, you're right. We, we should totally go talk to Jesus about this. Okay, but hang on, hang on. You know how Peter is always putting his foot in his mouth? He's always saying really dumb things. And I don't want to look like him. I don't want to look like that terrible disciple. Especially it's a pretty big week and all. We have Passover coming and who knows what's going to happen. Okay, I know. Let's get mom to do it. Yeah, they, James and John, they've done everything that Jesus has, has asked them to do, right? They, they haven't understood it all, but they've done it, and they want to know what's in it for them, right? Even though it's their mom asking, Jesus actually turns to them and says, y'all don't know what you're talking about. Y'all don't know what you're talking about. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, Jesus is talking about drinking the cup of God's wrath, um, in judgment for their sin and for our sin. But they're ignorant, so they say, yeah, we can drink it. We can do it. It just goes to show you that there's a certain level of, of myth-making uh, in the search for greatness and significance. Either you think that you've already done what's requisite for you to be considered great, or that you can do enough to merit greatness, or that maybe you just have always felt slighted enough that you know you, you've been through enough hardship that now it's your time in the sun. And on top of all of that, we are people that want to leave legacies. We want to be remembered as significant people. There's some sense that the memory of you or the memory of your work would even reach beyond death, right? Neil Gaiman, the, the author, um, he was talking about this. He said, when you die, they can make diamonds out of you now. That's how I want to be remembered. I just want to shine. It was in the news a, a few months ago, uh, President Trump was uh, was visiting Mount Vernon, George Washington's home with uh, with the president of France, and um, and Trump said, you know, I, I don't know why Washington did, just didn't put his name on this place. I mean, if you don't put your name on stuff, then people are going to forget you. But here's the thing, people do forget you. Um, remember, uh, for those that have already been through high school um, and, and college, remember getting to the end of those seasons of life and say, saying to your really good friends, we're going to be best friends forever that just usually doesn't happen. On certain occasions it does. But people, people forget you. You know, I, I'm sure that when you drove in to church this morning that, uh, that you were thanking God for uh, the, the life and the legacy that Nicholas August Otto has, has left and the impact that he made uh, on modern society, didn't you? No, probably none of you know who he is. Maybe, maybe one or two. Um, he is the man who invented the gasoline-powered internal combustion engine. That's how you got here this morning. But he's forgotten. How we believe that, how we typically believe that significance is achieved is through what we do that would leave some sort of indelible in impression. And that's because we live in a culture of meritocracy. 
how you achieve greatness is to, to go to the right schools, uh, to, to get the right job, to marry the right guy or marry the right gal, um, to invest in the right funds, to buy the right kind of home in the right kind of neighborhood, to raise the right kind of kids, to feed them the right kind of foods, organic, um, get them involved in a bunch of extracurricular activities, and then send them to the right schools. Right? But in a meritocracy, uh, you're always worried about your image and your reputation. You're always worried about your position. How do I, I stack up against that other person? How do I stack up against that other employee? How do I stack up against those other moms? Right? There was some research that was done a few years ago on this segment of the population called the ultra-rich. Um, for those that don't know, the ultra-rich are those that have more than $50 million in net assets, which I would gladly take a third of that. Um, Yes, or even even a tenth. Um, but they they were studied, and they said that um, that it's that segment of the population um, that typically uh, have this sense that that their wealth is not as significant as it actually is. They don't feel as rich because they live in um, in neighborhoods where everyone else is ultra rich. They have the same square footage of homes. They have the same fancy cars. They go to the same uh, galas. Right, belong to the same country clubs. And so, again, they, they don't feel like their wealth is as significant. It's also this segment of the population that, um, that work twice as hard uh, to increase their wealth than any other segment of the population. Because they have to be on top, right? And, and they have to continue the climb. Um, they have to... to, to um, to separate themselves from, from other people. This is, this is why Major League Baseball players like Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez, who are already going to go to the Hall of Fame on their natural talents, they started taking steroids. This is why um, wealthy um, people and uh, celebrities, well-known celebrities, who had enough money to send their kids anywhere to college they wanted to, participated in uh, an admissions uh, scheme. Because you have to be on top, and once you've gotten on top, you have, you have to stay on top. But here's the thing. A, a lot of what really matters in this life, um, you can't really measure quantitatively. You measure it qualitatively. Like, like how do you measure being a good parent? Right? So we start making up stuff to see how we stack up against other people. Because if someone else is prettier or someone else has a better job or is more talented or has a nicer car, then I have to find something that makes me feel more significant than them. Like, I may not be uh, part of the, the ultra-rich segment of, of American society, but at least I voted for the right person. Right? But here's what Jesus says. This is what the Gentiles do. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not kingdom thinking. When the rest of the disciples heard that James and John were asking these questions of Jesus, it says that they became indignant. They hated them for it. Not because they beat them to the punch, but because they're saying, how dare you think that you're better qualified to sit next to Jesus in His kingdom than me. 
How dare you? I'm significant too. I'm important. As the disciples go out of Jericho, as we read in our text, you see more of this. Here you've got two blind men who are sitting by the roadside who are calling out to Jesus for mercy. And the disciples try to silence them. Right? Jesus is teaching as he's walking down the road. And they're saying, y'all be quiet. Hush. What are they really saying? I'm more important than you. He's talking to me. He's teaching me. You're interrupting. I'm more important than you. When I cut somebody off in traffic, um, if I cut you off in traffic, I'm sorry. Um, But when I do that, I'm saying I'm more important than you. Because I'm going places and you're obviously not. Um, So I've earned the right to drive how I want. When my child um, wants to to play with me, Daddy, would you play with me? And, And I'm watching my favorite sporting event of the year, the Masters Golf Tournament, and I work hard, and, um, and I've earned the right just to sit down and relax and not be bothered, I'm saying, I'm more important than you, son. When I've lived next door to neighbors for years and don't really know them, I'm saying I'm more important than them. Because, you know, I've got a lot of responsibilities and people that are pulling me in different directions and vying for my time, and I've just earned the right to be left alone. We have this search for significance, but where do you find real significance? Look back in verse 25. Jesus called to them and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus says here goes hand in hand uh, with uh, earlier in the passage when Jesus talks about the laborers in the vineyard. And he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Here you have laborers that come in the, the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, the end of the day. And at the end of the day, they're all paid the same. Right, The first shall be last, the last shall be first. No matter when you started, you get the same wages. Now, when we, when we hear Jesus say this, um, probably our first reaction to him is not, you know, Jesus, you are so wise. You're so wise. No, our first reaction is that's not fair. That's not fair. I've worked so hard... And I put in so much time, so much blood, sweat, and tears, and I've just been trying to get to the top, and now I'm at the top, and you're telling me to go to the bottom. What gives? But here's how Jesus turns how we look at significance on its head. Because the one who was at the top went to the bottom, to be, to, not to be served, but to serve. And they give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It's, it's pretty amazing what he's saying when you think about that. This is Jesus' favorite term for himself. It's a prophetic title. It comes from the book of Daniel where Daniel says, I saw um, in my night visions one like the Son of Man uh, descending from the heaven who possessed all power and all glory and dominion that all peoples should worship him and serve him. And Jesus says, that, that's who I am. 
And, and it's true. All of this is true about Jesus. He is full of glory and power, and He has dominion over all things and all people and all hearts, and we should worship and serve Him. But Jesus is saying, and yet I have come to serve you. As the hymn says, He left His Father's throne above so free and infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Do you remember how Jesus um, went into Jerusalem? In just the very next chapter, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. How did he enter? It wasn't on some thoroughbred. It wasn't in a chariot. It wasn't in a tank. It was on the colt of a donkey. It's this animal that you would hook up a plow to. Um, It's this animal that would uh, carry your heavy loads. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to carve out, to plow attractive righteousness for you. I have come to carry your load of sin to serve you. It's amazing that the one who ascribes significance to you by making you in his image, by crowning you with glory and honor and giving you purpose, the one whom you sin against times without number, is the same one that considered you so significant that He would come and He would sacrifice Himself for you. It's amazing. He gave you His life for His life. He told James and John that uh, that they they would drink His cup. It's not the same cup that Jesus drinks. Uh, Jesus drinks the wrath, uh, the cup of God's wrath and judgment for for sin, but what cup do James and John drink? It's the same cup that we drink. It's a cup of blessing, the one that was marked out for Jesus um, because He is worthy of all, um, of all praise and honor. Uh, we receive all the benefits of His righteousness and, and His holiness, and He gets what we deserve. He gets punished for our sin. And he says that he gave his, his life as a ransom for us. That implies captivity, right? It implies captivity, which means that without the work of Jesus, that you remain a captive to sin, a prisoner of sin. And that's not something that you can get out for good behavior. Um, you can't get probation. It doesn't matter if you're a, a Bill Gates type Um, who has invented something that changes the world, how it operates. Uh, It doesn't matter if you've earned billions of dollars and given billions of dollars away. That might seem really significant, and it is significant, right? Um, But in God's economy, if you haven't been ransomed by the work of Jesus, uh, then you're no better off than a popular death row inmate who can sneak in the most packs of smokes. You're just not. You're still a captive. You're a prisoner. And there ain't a rock hammer in the world that can dig your way out of Shawshank prison. In God's kingdom, significance doesn't come by way of meritocracy. It comes by way of mercy. It's mercy. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time... um, that seems like Christianity 101, doesn't it? It's, it's nothing new. But here's the problem. We live in a culture uh, that values merit to, to such a degree 
that even acts of mercy are considered resume items. And we can get wrapped up into that. We can be affected by that. Did you notice that, that Jesus asked the same question uh, to the, the blind men as he did to James and uh, John's mother? He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? The disciples want prestige, right? The blind men want mercy, seemingly. So which ones receive the greater blessing? Which ones receive the greater blessing? The, the ones who've given up everything to follow Jesus from the very beginning, um, who sometimes ask really ignorant questions, um, or the ones who are jumping on the bandwagon at the end of, uh, of Jesus' life just a few days before he dies because they want to be healed? Which one is worthy of mercy? That's not really a fair question, is it? Because no one deserves mercy. It's freely given. But as we measure our lives up against others, we have this notion that the, uh, this notion that the one that paid the costlier price, the one who, who camped out for the tickets, um, have a right to the better seats at the show. That's not how God's kingdom works. That the labors in the vineyard, no matter when you begin, you all get the same wages. God has mercy on whom He has mercy. He has compassion on whom He has compassion. And here's the, the beautiful reality of, of this for us. Is, and I, again, I know it's Gospel 101, but God came in the flesh to pour out His mercy on us because what not because of what, the, what we have done deserves it, but because what we have done demands it. Our sin demands mercy. We're hopeless and helpless without of it. I'm going to say something that, that may sound strange to you, um, but just bear with me. Um, God doesn't love you because Jesus died for your sins. God doesn't love you because Jesus died for your sins. That's actually not what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus died for your sins because God loves you. Jesus died for your sins because God loves you. And guess what? That makes you significant. So how do we, how do we see this work into our lives? A couple things. First, if you understand that the significance that you have in this life um, and the next is solely due to the pursuing love and mercy of God, then it actually does a couple of things. First, it begins to unburden us from the temptation uh, to, uh, to always look at our lives in comparison uh, to others. Here's the point, that if the God of the universe finds you so significant that He's come down and given up his life for you, to save you, to give eternal life to you, to be with you forever and ever and ever, what does it matter what anyone else thinks of you? But also, it encourages you to reflect the love and mercy of God to other people that, that are just as needy for his love and mercy as you are. In other words, you start to realize that the quality of your um, attachments uh, are far more important in God's kingdom 
than the quality of your achievements. When we live a life where we're trying to stack up our lives and our achievements against other people and jockeying for position to feel significant, we end up being cold and separate and distant from others. And what we communicate is God is cold and separate and distant. But strangers become neighbors and competitors become friends when you're humbled by the character of a God who pursues you in love and mercy. And when we realize that, we, and we begin to pursue others in the love and mercy of God, it communicates to them, you are unique, you are valuable, you are loved, you are significant in the eyes of a God who longs to show you mercy and to give you hope that can never fade. Let me pray for us. O Lord, um, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, And yet, Lord, you you call us your sons and daughters. Um, You crown us with glory and honor uh, because you love to do that. Um, You have... (laughs) Um, You have made us heirs of your kingdom, not because of what we have done, but because of your love, because of your plan, because of your redemption in Jesus. And so, Lord, we we stop and praise you for that. Um, And we pray that we would live today out of that reality that others um, may taste and see that you are good. Lord, may we not forget that there is nothing that we could do um, that could separate us from your love. Um, There is nothing that we could do or not do uh, that would take away or add to your love, that you love us so much that you came and lived for us, Lord Jesus. Um, You were tempted as we're tempted. Uh, You were perfect in your obedience. You bled and died for us and you were raised again to life for us and you ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us uh, and you have planned to come back to put an end to all sadness and strife and confusion um, and sin and to make things right. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.